Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 183. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Yo, what is going on, all you unstoppable restaurant professionals? It's Thursday, which means it's Authority Thursday. We have a great authority for you today. David Denny going to blow us away with some law knowledge, specifically how we can protect ourselves legally um, and things we can do when it comes to foodborne illnesses. But before I hit play, I need to take a minute just to thank our sponsors today. Sponsor Audible. I mean, we've learned time and time again that we need to educate ourselves and to invest in ourselves, our own knowledge, to be successful in this industry. And with such tight schedules, that's hard. I get it. But audiobooks makes it possible to learn and to absorb and take in these books literally no matter what you're doing. As long as you're not taking a shower, you could be taking a shower as long as you don't have headphones on. But the point I'm trying to make is you can turn almost any environment into to a, I don't know what you want to call it, a university, <laughs> simply by downloading these books and listening and do it with your team. Just head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable. The most recommended book on the show is Danny Myers sitting on the table. That book is in audio form. You can find it at Audible. Again, www.audibletrial.com slash unstoppable. Get Danny Myers sitting the table for free today. All right, now for today's show, I hope you guys and gals enjoy it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, David Denny. David, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am, Eric. Thanks, man. <laughs> awesome. So, David Denny is the founder and chairs of the Food, Beverage, and Hospitality Practice Group and uh, frequently speaks across the country on legal issues facing the restaurant, bar, and hospitality industry. Denny is a frequent contributor to the Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine and has had articles featured in QSR Magazine, Nightclub, and Bar Magazine, uh, in the Mix Magazine, Food Safety Solutions Magazine, the CMAA Newsletter, and various HospitalityLawyer.com newsletters. So we have an authority here today with us. I cannot wait to dive into your mind, David, and to extract some nuggets of knowledge. But before we do that, we need to get that inspirational, motivational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us today? Oh, that's an easy one. Um, it's a little old school, though, so be ready. It's uh, it's be excellent to each other. Mm. And, and when appropriate, party on. Awesome. And there's so much weight in that. Uh, I just finished uh, The Speed of Trust uh, by Stephen R. Covey's son, Stephen R. Covey second or whatever his, he goes by. And uh, there's so much weight in just having respect for each other. And uh, say that quote one more time for me. Be excellent to each other. Being excellent. I mean, if, if you want to get the trust from somebody, if you want things to happen quickly, it's all about just uh, 
being good to one another. And if you can do that, so many great things can happen. I mean, what does that quote really say to you? Well, it, it says, treat everybody the way you want to be treated, but, but do it, do it and your business in an excellent way. You always need to strive to overachieve. Mm, I love it. Awesome way to kick off this interview. So, um, just a quick background on you before we dive into today's topic, which is going to be basically we're going to be giving you folks the foundation of how to protect yourself from foodborne illness. Uh, David has spoken on this subject before. He's going to knock it out of the park today. But I want to learn more about you, David. So why did you decide to focus on the hospitality industry, food and beverage, um, as uh, you, you mean your focus for a career in law? So... Um you, as you might guess, lawyering can have a tendency to be boring. And so in no. the first few years of my practice, it was boring. And um, so my my hobbies are not going to professional football games or going to basketball games or whatever. Um, my, my hobby is going out. I would rather go to a four-hour dinner and, and enjoy good food and wine mm-hmm. than, you know, go tailgate and sit in a stadium and get into traffic and get out of traffic. Okay. So, and, um, you know, as, as uh, Danny Meyer says, the, the dining experience is entertainment just as much as a professional or college sporting event is. And so I wanted to figure out how I could marry my avocation and my love of, of food and beverage with my legal career and my profession, which wasn't going to change. I spent way too much money going to school to ever have another career. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I figured if I could marry my my hobby and my passion with my work, I'd be a lot happier person. And I know so few people that have actually achieved that. I wanted to really strive for it. And so about 10 years ago, I started trying to accomplish that. And, um, and, and over the, over time, I mean, I, uh, I knew a couple of, um, of classically trained chefs that either had a restaurant or worked in, um, in restaurant as executive chef. And, and they didn't have any business training from their from their culinary school background. I mean, now it's a lot better. Now you actually get classes uh, that that delve into management and reading spreadsheets and a little bit more business. But even as as recently as ten years ago, most of those programs were focused solely on the art and craft of culinary. And so, um, when those when those chefs and those um, restaurant professionals get the ability to go out and do their first restaurant. They're so eager to achieve their dream. I found really fast that they would sign just about anything anybody put in front of them. And so they wouldn't negotiate leases and they wouldn't know how to pay overtime correctly. And there's always an exception to the rule, right? Actually, there's an exception that proves the rule. But, um, but for the most part, uh, they, were, they were really endangering themselves personally by not having business entities. And just there were so many – there was a lot of opportunity there for me to help the industry. And it is a very, very tiny niche of a law practice. There are very few people in the country that practice the way that we practice. And so um, not only has it allowed me to sort of become an expert in a field that I have loved for years um, since I was watching Julia Child on public television as a kid, it has allowed me to really, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like we have been able to elevate the profession um, into a far more uh, serious, uh, more of a corporate and business-like environment. So mm-hmm. it has really been a fun ride, and I can't wait to see, you know, how our practice continues to evolve. 
Awesome. I mean, so much just listening to you talk, so much I've learned from past mentors on the show. I just heard coming out of your mouth. For example, um, I mean, just marrying what you love with your career. And I feel like so many of us in the hospitality industry can resonate with that because it's those of us uh, who are successful, who found a way to really find a niche, something that we're truly passionate about, and to re you know, to manifest that uh, passion in that niche in like a, a special, like I don't know, segment of the industry where like no one else is being is like meeting that need. Um, and I feel like that's exactly what you did with your passion for the hospitality industry and your skills for uh, you know law. And I, it kind of reminds me of Ben Fletcher's advice of. Stay in your lane. You know, you have, like you said, you have this skill for law and this uh, this investment. You can't go anywhere else. But anyway, like you stayed in that lane and you found a way to marry those passions, which is awesome. And uh, also, one other thing that came to mind was be present, be on purpose, which is great advice from a really recent guest, my previous guest, Rudy Mick, who um, just talks about living on purpose, living intentionally, and combining your, your passions with your life and just living intentionally. And I hear you doing that. So I need to commend you on that, my friend. That's fantastic. I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. So we eat really well. Yeah, I bet. So, um, talk to us. So we, we learned more about you and why you got into this industry. So let's talk mo- a little bit more about your practice. I mean, where do you specialize in? Like, how are you unique, um, in this industry? So our, our firm's trademark, is that we're a nose-to-tail law practice. And mm-hmm. for people outside the industry, they don't understand what that means. But people in the industry immediately get what we're all about when they hear that. Because we're nose-to-tail in the sense that we uh, we are able to assist the new or growing or or accelerating restaurant company in every phase of its life cycle. And that includes forming their companies, helping them raise private equity, uh, doing their leases, doing their employee handbooks, um, doing their liquor registration, liquor licensing, um, and then dealing with things like Department of Labor and overtime issues and contracts with vendors like Coca-Cola or Cisco. And we run the gamut all the way through the exit strategy, which might be growth, sale, franchising. Um, it, uh and, and, and we don't have a bankruptcy practice because we, we believe in success and we've had very, very few restaurants close in the last 10 years. I think we've only lost five clients to closure out of the hundreds of restaurants that we've Wow, built. that's awesome. Great. So um, let's dive into today's topic. Today you're going to talk to us, uh, you're going to give us a foundation on foodborne illness and how we can protect ourselves from it. So where do you want to start with this topic? So it probably makes sense, and, and I know this isn't a law school lecture, and I certainly don't want it to be because it would be a lot less fun, but, but I think that it's helpful for, um, for hospitality professionals to sort of understand where the exposure lies in, in foodborne illness and allergies because uh, when it comes to serving guests, it's the uh, end-all, be-all of the entire industry, right? And if you can't do that safely, then you put not only your business but also the general public at risk. And that not only will it, can it lead to lawsuits, but sometimes more detrimentally, it can lead to really bad press. And mm-hmm. sometimes when there is not a lawsuit, you know, two years later, um, you can you can have that bad headline two weeks later, and it can cause far more significant damage to your to your business 
than if some flesh-eating plaintiff lawyer had uh, filed a lawsuit against you two years after the incident happened. Mm. So, so figuring out, you know, where are the risks and where, how are you going to get sued and what are, what are the dangers there is, is sort of the foundation of the practice. And then I want to talk about some specific examples of where people screw up and, and then end with some tips on how to formulate policies and procedures to avoid that kind of incident. And then maybe talk a little bit about, okay, if there is an incident, how do we get how, – what do we do? Awesome. Um, okay, so let's start with where are the risks. Can you highlight some of the hot spots for us? So, so anytime you serve a food or a beverage to a guest, you're giving that guest a warranty, just like the warranty that comes with your stereo or your dishwasher. And, and there are different kinds of warranties. But an implied warranty is a warranty that you don't necessarily say or write down. But everybody assumes it is there, like my food is going to be fit to eat and not be spoiled. That's an implied warranty. But you also have what's called an express warranty, which is uh, maybe a server says, yes, we can serve you a meal that doesn't have nuts in it because if you eat nuts, you'll die. And, and if you breach a warranty, that's another way for you to get sued. So, so if something bad happens, the restaurant is going to get sued for a lot of different causes of action in the same lawsuit. You'll get sued for negligence. You'll get sued for breach of warranty. You'll get sued for potentially for strict liability if you uh, served an unsafe food product, just like if you sold a car that had a broken seatbelt. Mm-hmm. And so the, the reason that I bring up a breach of warranty is that in some states, including my home state of Texas, if you, when you sue for a breach of warranty, you can claim triple damages and ask for your attorney's fees to be paid by the defendant if you win. And so rather than have a typical negligence case where somebody hires a lawyer on contingency and um, you know, has to pay them uh, a percentage if they win, you almost have something more akin to a contract case if you have a breach of warranty. And so it makes that litigation much more dangerous. Um, so, like yeah. so you have to focus on you know, food that doesn't meet the standards of these warranties or things that are spoiled or undercooked or that contain a foreign object. Um, or things that contain an allergen after you've been warned that somebody can't have that allergen. Uh, and we run into a lot of cases with foreign uh, foreign substances or people, you know, people say, oh, I broke my tooth in your restaurant. And a lot of times that's just a scam. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's legitimate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, have, uh, if you have people on the line that are goofing off, uh, not paying attention, uh, or, or, you know, the, there are some extreme cases where you have workers that thought they'd be funny and, uh, you know, put Dave's Insanity Sauce into a kid's hamburger. And, and you know, that is not a safe meal for a child. No. Those those incidents have been, you know, they involve ambulances. And so they, they tend to Has escalate. that actually happened? Are you using yeah. Wow. Well, and I don't think it was Dave's exactly. It was some other super, super insanely hot sauce. But – yeah, a, a restaurant worker asked a, a father and son, like, hey, do you want hot sauce on your sandwich? And the the restaurant's hot sauce was, you know, your run-of-the-mill, low-level flavor additive. And he put his own personal bottle of death sauce. In fact, I, did, I do think it had the word death in it, but it was some sort of death sauce. And it burned the kid's esophagus um, and sent him to the hospital, right? So mm-hmm. that may or may not result in a lawsuit, but it will almost certainly result in um, in headlines, of some kind, either in food blogs or 
uh, it'll damn sure end up on Yelp, and it might end up in the actual, you know, city newspaper. So, but you know, there's little things that can happen. I mean, there's just there's vulnerable spots everywhere. I can think of an, an example right now where I was working on a, a line making pizzas, and where I was making a Greek pizza. We have column of olives on the pizza. We peel the the pit out, and I threw the pit to the trash, and it bounced off the rim and landed on. I can't remember what it was exactly, some kind of sub, but I, I immediately, I was like, whoa. Like, <laughs> I just, but like, you know, I wasn't right to be throwing things across the kitchen. Like, mistakes can happen, but just that's just a little example of where something can be contaminated, um, where it's completely just innocent, but right. I mean, that could have done damage. Those pits are hard. If you chop into one of those. Right. Yeah. So, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to No, no, to no. Say of it. course. And, and and the incident with, you know, a rogue employee is not necessarily something that you can control. Mm-hmm. But what it does suggest is that you, you want to make sure, even in a high turnover industry like food service can be, that you want to make sure that you are invested in that hiring process and um, checking re- uh, references and, and potentially doing background checks on people. It, I know a lot of people don't like to do that, but, but background checks, especially for managers, can be very, very critical. Mm-hmm. So, so what most of the time leads to your foodborne illness incident is either contaminated food that either gets contaminated on site or from a comes contaminated from a supplier mm-hmm. or a contaminated workspace, um, you know, where you cut raw chicken on one cutting board and then you use the same thing. Well, more often, more often it's people washing chicken in, um, in a prep sink and doing really stupid things like that mm-hmm. or a contaminated employee who is sick with God knows what, hepatitis or norovirus or a stomach bug, and then continues to work. Um, and those are the three most common ways that you end up with foodborne illness, um, all of which will have the health department knocking on your door and and then potentially a plaintiff's lawyer knocking on your door. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so um, we're talking about risks now, right now. So are, are there any other risks you want to bring up or have we covered the majority of them? Well, on foodborne illness, that's the majority. On allergens, you you're, the risks are that obviously that you serve an allergic person, a severely allergic person, an allergen to which they are allergic. Right? That's that's the that's the killer instant. And so, mm-hmm. um, some restaurants don't realize that they have the option to answer the question, "Can you serve me a safe meal?" With no, I, I don't think we can. I really, I'm really sorry, but gosh, there's so much gluten in the back. We just have flour everywhere. We can't guarantee that somebody with celiac is not going to get irritated even if we try to serve them a gluten-free meal. Mm-hmm. It's a perfectly acceptable answer to say, I really, I'm really sorry, but I don't think we can. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the far worse answer is to have a server that doesn't really know the ingredients or the preparation techniques answer incorrectly because every single one of the cases that comes out about, a food, about an allergy death involves a server assuring the guest that, that – their their allergen is not present in the dish, and then that person dies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's mainly because the servers don't know all the ingredients or the preparation techniques. One of the most um, one of the most illustrative cases in that is an, a Chinese restaurant where a guest that had a peanut allergy specifically went in, and he said, "Are the egg rolls fried in peanut oil?" And the server assured him that they were not. And the server did not know that the kitchen used peanut butter to seal the roll and to enhance the flavor. So she answered the question correctly, but because she didn't know about the, the ingredients and the, and the technique, he died Mm -hmm. and they sued the restaurant for 
multi-gajillion dollars and ended up with a, a really big settlement in their wrongful death case. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point because you're seeing you mean you mentioned nose tail earlier about how there's a uh, a good trend, a trend that I very much support of us going towards uh, using sourcing food locally, using things that are in season at that time. But that causes a situation where menu items are changing faster than ever now with, with people who are trying to really be sustainable with their menu. Uh, they're, they're trying to, you know, capitalize what's local, what's in season now. So as a server, I can see how you can get sucked into not being able to keep up with the kitchen as far as the knowledge and the food. So I can see that being, a, you know, it, it has always been a threat, but now particularly with people making an active effort to really uh, be sustainable, I can see that being being even more of a threat. I mean, what do you think? Absolutely. And and so with with high, higher turnover in the, in, uh, in the front of the house typically and, and, and also the back of the house depending on sort of what segment of food service you're in, but it's too expensive to train all your servers and hosts and hostesses on the, on every ingredient and prep technique. So, um, so jumping ahead to the, the moral of the story, we, and we'll talk about this more as we sort of delve into it, but my, my recommendation is for every restaurant to designate a manager level employee. A general manager is the person that is allowed to answer those questions. When Mm -hmm. somebody says, I have an allergy and if you serve me this, I'll die. Mm Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that way you don't you, – you can put those wheels into motion. And the server is going to be trained on, oh, okay, somebody identified an allergy. I'm going to go get help. I'm going to go bring this to the manager's attention, and that's going to let the kitchen know. And there's a set of procedures that we're going to follow so that we make sure that this person's safe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just listening to you talk before, and it seems like most of the issues when it comes to uh, – you know, foodborne illnesses or allergies and mistakes come from people just not knowing, being incompetent, um, just because it's it might seem like common sense to people who are, you know, devote their life to this industry, but the majority of the people that you're going to be surrounding yourself with aren't going to have that same knowledge. It's not common sense to them. So you need to, it's up to you to, to I think I know where this conversation is going, is to create those systems, processes, procedures, and protocols to um, educate your people so they can, you know, do the right thing. And I'm curious, um, you sent me your your notes, your uh, PowerPoint presentation beforehand so I could familiarize myself with the topic, and you talk about working it into the... the, um, values i think like the culture of the company early on yeah with uh like making sure people know about their hygiene and this is these are our standards these are our values how important is that well so if you're not building a culture you're working in an in in an empty hollow shell Mm -hmm. so so in the in the effort of building an overall individual corporate culture even if you're a single restaurant you, you're a corporate culture, whether you think you're corporate or not. You can still wear a dirty T-shirt and make fart noises at meetings, but you're <laughs> corporate. Yeah. And so um, what we want to see is put an emphasis on um, on this training on the first day. Don't mm-hmm. wait until you get around to your six-month training on allergies and foodborne illness. Uh, bring it into the initial training program. Put it in the employee handbook. And then, and then put it into the sort of the orientation process. Put that emphasis 
on your foodborne illness and allergy procedures on day one and just mention mm-hmm. it because you don't want to wait until you get around to training on it six months later yeah. for people to have that big fat window to screw up in. Yeah. And thank you for explaining that just a little bit more because I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is where does it all start? And it sounds like it all starts from day one when you're – even before you open the doors, when you're sitting down and you're writing your mission, your vision, and your values, you need to work that sucker in there to know that, hey, we are going to be a clean company who takes this seriously because if we don't, I mean all this hard work could be for nothing if we get taken to court or if we hurt somebody or we kill somebody. That's all it takes to bury a dream. So it's super important. So, so even sort of pre-day one, um, it might seem like a little thing to, to put into the job description um, for all of your kitchen staff and probably your wait staff too that you expect to have good personal hygiene as a, as a job requirement. But, but bad personal hygiene, not only does it, is it off-putting to guests as a no-brainer, mm-hmm. but it also has the potential to lead to unsanitary working conditions. And so – if you put it in the job description and then somebody doesn't meet those qualifications and they won't take a shower for five days, then you can fire them because they aren't meeting the job description. Exactly. It gives you something to lean up against. I see where yeah. you're going. Yeah. Awesome. So um, you also mentioned some of the things we can do, and I think we're kind of starting to get there now, working into your systems and your operations manuals and your protocol. So give us some groundwork. Give us a place to start and what the structure should look like when we're doing everything right. Okay. Um, so in terms of developing your internal policies, there is a, there's a, uh, especially as to foodborne illness prevention, there's a really good list, um, that it, it seems like common sense, but it's actually, it's actually pretty good. And it has some, it has some little tidbits in it that are not in every list that you might think of. So professor Stephen Barth from the Hilton school down in Houston has put this list together and I mean, I just try to integrate it into people's uh, training materials, and, and it's a checklist of what people have to do. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you can insist that all your employees are certified in safety and sanitation, it's a huge, huge step toward making sure that there's no full foodborne illness outbreak at your at your restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's a little bit gross to think about, but somebody's got to clean the bathroom, mm-hmm. and you 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 might want to only have one person per shift doing that. So that you don't run the risk that stuff like that gets spread around, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and and then the to take that to the next step, if somebody does get sick in your restaurant, you should assume that they have norovirus, and you want to use an appropriate cleaner that will kill it. Um, common cleaning agents won't kill norovirus because it's like the Andromeda strain; it's a superbug, mm-hmm. and it can live in all kinds of extreme conditions. Um, it can live in cold and heat and live on steel for like two weeks, and it's really resilient. And so places like Ecolab and other vendors have norovirus-specific clean- cleaners that will kill norovirus. And so if somebody gets sick in the restaurant, you really want to task one person with doing that cleanup, and then you might want to send that person home so they don't go back into the kitchen, mm. right? I mean, I know that you don't want to send anybody into the dining room of your restaurant dressed in a, you know, a NASA spacesuit-looking thing to clean up a bunch of puke, but <laughs> you do need to take it seriously because the last thing you want to do is spread that stuff around um, and, and then further contaminate your dining area with it. Yeah. And then, oh, it's gross, but it's reality. And I have a quick question on that. I've, I've had an issue in the past where one of my – well, really smart, awesome, one of my awesome servers, uh, super smart, and really does due diligence and 
his research, uh, said something along the lines of he can't do a certain percentage of work that's not serving people. Um, has that ever been something you heard? Like if somebody doesn't want to clean the bathroom or they don't want to do, spend their whole time doing side work? I mean, how do we combat that? Is there is there a legal issue that runs with a percentage of time spent not doing the work that's in your job description? There can be with regard to servers because typically they're getting paid that tip wage and not a full hourly rate. Yeah. Um, and so if you had a server come in all day and just roll silverware, you'd have a problem. Yeah. Right? But courts have said that things like that are related to serving customers. You, 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 have, you, you can roll silverware in your downtime or between you know, day parts or whatever as long as your primary function and your primary time is spent serving guests. And so you, know, you, you get a diva who says, I'm not cleaning the bathroom. I'm just the server. That's probably not a good employee for you. Oh, and then you can come back and say, hey, part of serving our guests is making sure they got a clean throne to sit on. So get in there and get elbows deep. Right, uh, <laughs> and, and it would probably be probably extreme, not- <laughs> it would probably be an extreme example to have a server actually do that. I mean, it's probably more likely that you would have a straight hourly employee, like a dishwasher or somebody that works in the back of the house, to to do that. Um, and you don't have those tipped wage issues with um, with people that get paid a straight hourly rate. Yeah, sorry for the derail. It was just, no. it just popped into my head, and I I wouldn't be surprised if somebody else listening to this maybe has experienced the same issue. So uh, keep keep on going with the list. Well, my experience has been, um, unfortunately, a lot of my clients have uh, historically tried to hire directly out of culinary school. And sometimes the culinary school graduate that they get says, I'm not taking the trash out. I'm a chef. Uh-huh. And uh, if you're not willing to take out the trash, then you're not going to have a very bright future. When, mm-hmm. you know, so, so there are just times where things have to happen. Right. Um, Absolutely. But, but so also in the vein of sort of the bathroom, right, you just want to make sure that your restaurant has – has mops and cleaning tools that are specific to the restrooms and that you don't want to be using the same mop that you use in the restroom in the kitchen. And so typically those are color coordinated. It seems like an idiotic no brainer, except you'd be really surprised how few people do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would, (laughs) I guess, I don't know. It it can be kind of mind boggling sometimes, but yeah, it's up to us to train it. Like we said before, it's not common sense for everybody. So, um, so inspect your temperature gauges regularly in your, in your walk-ins and, um, and in your refrigeration units, there are some, there are some now that will send an alarm to your app. If the, uh, if the temperature gauge breaks in the middle of the night, so you you don't show up to, uh, walk in full of spoiled food. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my favorite headlines in all of food history is from the Dallas morning news. And the headline is, um, woman bites into roach at Fort Worth restaurant. And so make sure that you have regularly scheduled exterminator visits, even mm. if you don't think you, that you need them. If you don't train and test your people on how to properly thaw and reheat and cool and freeze food, you're making a huge error. And people really tend to cut corners in that department. And that is where bacteria thrives Oh yeah, when that's done, not done correctly. And, and just make sure that you have a good date labeling system. Some, of, some people are doing it by barcode scanner now. It does not have to be that scientific. I mean – you can do it as long as you as long as you have um, quality labeling um, and a rotation system that makes sense in your walk-ins. Then you don't have a, uh, have to worry about putting spoiled food out. Yeah, one of those systems that was mentioned on the show by uh, recent guests Braden and Yasmin Wages uh, was, I believe, Daymark Safety Systems. Is that something you've heard of? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think they had great things to say about their labeling system. They mentioned it on the show. That was episode 171, I believe, if you guys want to check that out. So here's another thing that, that tends to fall by the wayside, right? And again, it's stupidly easy, but ice scoops never get cleaned. Oh, yeah. They get funky, and people just don't think to clean them. Not even cleaning them, but people put them in the ice itself, the store, and I don't. that's the one thing that drives me bonkers. I don't know about you, but... I mean, the handle, think about all the times that people have touched that, and they just rest it right on top of the ice, um, which is, I think, so many people, just, it, like, even little things like that, it's common sense, but are you are you checking? Are you staying on top of those little things? Right. So Right. And and that's a, if if, the, if there's not supervision, then most of those little things don't get done. Mm-hmm. You know, awesome. because because your, your, typical, your typical employee's thought process is, well, one time won't matter, but then every shift one person thinks that and before long it's been two weeks since the ice scoop back mm-hmm. yeah exactly so so far i have train your staff check the bathrooms uh pay attention to the temperature gauges uh get an exterminator regularly coming in thaw reheat procedures and uh good date labeling and you just mentioned ice scoops is there anything else any other hot spots or so, so the last one with regard to foodborne illness is sort of a hot button issue with every restaurant in the world right and it's do you or do you not have a sick leave policy mm. there's a huge famously it's infamous case about the reno hilton from a few years ago mm-hmm. of their massive kitchen staff 40 percent of them had norovirus and there was no sick leave policy in place at that large hotel the jury found in 20 minutes they found that the cause of the norovirus outbreak was the hotel's failure to have a sick leave policy and people are actually penalized for not coming to work even though they were sick Mm -hmm. and so when those 1100 people got sick or whatever it was um and sued the hotel it was i think it was a 20 million dollar verdict against the hotel wow and the fact that one of the causes or the root cause as found by the jury was the lack of a sick leave policy is really indicative of um, where the industry is probably heading. The National Restaurant Association has not taken a position on whether they will add, well, whether they recommend that you have a sick leave policy or not because they, they say that everybody should decide on a case-by-case basis. But my recommendation is that if you make people work the line while they're sick, you are asking for it. Yeah, you know, I can see it's such a, oh man, it's so sensitive because there's such little margins. And I mean, we're already spread thin, but you have to really look at it and say, can I take a hit? Can I risk uh, getting my whole staff sick by having this person being here and then really being, you know, up the river without a paddle? And, um, I mean, it's tough because this industry has kind of that reputation of being a bunch of badasses. You know, we work every day. I mean, you can, you know, cut off a finger and you just, you know, put duct tape on it. You're good to go. Um, But it's, I don't know. I can see how you can get sucked into that. Well, yeah, and there's an old school chef mentality that says you don't work, you get, you, you don't have a job. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, you go throw up and you come back and you work on the hotline. Yeah. So. You know, is that a good way to do it? No. I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I also understand that staffing issues are tight, right? Yeah. So, it is. It really is a a sort of a philosophical issue that I think in in terms of business planning, it really has to be addressed. You know, like what kind of company are we going to be? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think it's um, you had mentioned it before. You wanted to talk about protocol, correct? Like, what do you do? Yeah. So let's talk about allergy protocol, mm-hmm. right? 
So somebody comes in and says, "Hey, listen, you know, I've got a uh, I've got a tree nut allergy, and I need you to assure me that I can't. I mean, that I can have a safe meal." So there are there's a there's another case that I speak on a lot where guy comes into the restaurant and says, "Man, your chicken pesto sandwich looks really good. Are there nuts in it?" And the server says, "No, it's it's really smooth." Um, and everybody in the world should know that pesto has pine nuts in it, mm-hmm. right? And he, he didn't die right away. He had, went into anaphylactic shock, went into a coma for a week, and then died. It was a horrific thing. Mm-hmm. And it could have been avoided if somebody had just asked the question. But she hadn't been trained, or he or she. I mean, I, I don't know whether it was a he or not. But um, the server hadn't been trained to ask and didn't even think anything of it. They were just trying to be accommodating. Yeah, you so, know? so Dave, give us the protocol right now. Let's go back. Let's work through that that circumstance where somebody asks a question about an allergy, what's the first thing? So the server, the say? server basically needs to have a, a red flag go up in, in his mind and say, okay, look, now I'm going to go, um, I'm going to go talk to this GM. So every shift, a, a general manager or an AGM is going to be designated. You're either going to say it's a GM or an AGM. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the one that people go to, to get these answers. So the second part of that is you have to make sure that your managers are actually trained on the information about ingredients and fruit, food prep techniques. And so yeah. maybe it's not the AGM or the GM. Maybe it's the, sh- the head chef. Mm-hmm. But if you're in the middle of a really busy service, the last thing the head chef wants to do is talk about one dish. Mm. So, you know, that's that's another cultural shift that has to be overcome is, hey, we've got an allergic diner out here. And, and I understand the dichotomy between people and their wonky food preferences relative to true allergies. Um but if somebody says, I have an allergy, you've got to treat them like it's an allergy. Mm-hmm. So to so make sure that that manager or, or well, the chef would be trained on it, but make sure that that manager level employee is actually trained on where to get the answers, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have to train the staff to look to that person for the answers. So if they don't follow the protocol, they have to be disciplined. I mean, I don't know if they get terminated immediately, but it should be a strict enforcement of the policy mm-hmm. so that you can... Make sure that it works. The last thing you want is a policy that you don't enforce because it shows the world that you've appreciated the risk, but then you don't enforce it because you don't care. Yeah, absolutely. So so because you don't want to consistently train your front and back of the house high turnover positions on this ingredient and food prep and allergy information, um, what you should just do is train your staff to look for um, – not only to look for, okay, here's what I do when somebody identifies that they have an allergy, but also if somebody is in distress and is having an allergic reaction, you want them to know what that looks like. So it's not that hard to train somebody as to, to what an allergic reaction symptom is, but that way they can really, really quickly move to call 911. Yep. And people ask me a lot, hey, David, should we keep an EpiPen here on the restaurant? You know, some people have those uh, automatic defibrillators or whatever. Um, but an EpiPen is a prescription and it's a drug and they expire. And so um, unless you want to be, you know, Pulp Fiction jamming a great big needle into somebody's heart, which I don't recommend, I don't, <laughs> it, you should not do that. You should yeah. never, we shouldn't even give a diner aspirin, much less give them an EpiPen. <laughs> yeah, so, so publish your allergy policies on the web, right? Publish your menus on the web. Even Brinker has a series of here's what you should eat here if you have this particular allergy or sensitivity. And so 
they haven't done a whole lot right in terms of, you know, they're a big corporate behemoth with, you know, the typical independent chef thinks that it's, you know, the worst quality thing in the world. But at least they've got multiple menus and have identified here's what you can eat or here's what you shouldn't. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that I would just like to chime in t- to mention, it's it's getting easier and easier to, to house the, like these, like you can create these tests, you can house them on Google Drive where everyone can have access to it. Even today, taking videos, putting together a solid training program um, and making it mandatory that you go through the entire you know program before you go live on your own on the floor um, is just the little things you can do. It's a lot of work up front. But you save so much time in the long run when you just do that hard work once and you, com- you commit it to a system and you house it someplace that can be accessed from by everyone. And right. I think that is another great example you have of just eat, you know, publishing your ingredients. Uh, leave it up to the guests to, to you know find out if they can or cannot eat those things. And that takes a lot of that relief off of your servers. Absolutely. And, and, and I don't usually – I mean I'm not here to hawk products, but – there's a product out there called the Digital Red Book, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of affiliated other services. But the Digital Red Book basically takes the old school manager's red book and digitizes it, and they have a scheduling tool called Hot Schedules that's really amazing. But yeah. they also have a training tool that uses something called Scooks, and it will monitor okay, you know, Joey has watched 22% of this video, he didn't get through it, you know, he's got five days to finish, or um, you know, here's here are the training protocols that XYZ employee have finished. So you can integrate that not only into your employee initial employee training, but ongoing training, and it can be done at their pace online. And so you can build those. It's not you don't have to be Jimmy John's to have an, an internet and some training protocol videos. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the folks over at Hot Schedules are good friends of Restaurant Unstoppable and plenty, oh, good. plenty of my guests have recommended their services. So yeah. it's a- absolutely worth checking out. I'll link back to that in the show notes. And on that topic of linking back to things, um, can you provide us with the links to this checklist you were talking about and two examples of where we can go or places we can go to uh, implement protocols and these systems into our operations manual? Yeah, and in terms of – and I'll send you the links to, to put into the material. But but the National Restaurant Association and the Allergy and Anaphylaxis Network have put together like um, food allergy training guides and things like that. There's You can download videos or you can get printed materials to help train your staff. Uh, and it's really, it's really easy. And it will contain, it'll contain a lot of really practical information, but – I mean, I mean, things like, hey, avoid cross-contamination. If somebody has an allergen, you can't cook their fish. If it's not an allergen. If somebody has an allergy, you can't cook their fish on the same grill that you just used to cook all the fish. You have to either clean the grill or tell them no. Mm-hmm. And so for cross-contamination, which is a huge source of allergic reaction, just some tips on that because it's really important. Use color-coded cutting boards for different kinds of material. I mean, if you're using shellfish, if you're working with shellfish and vegetables or whatever, you probably want to use different colored cutting boards, and you can get them in the rainbow fruit flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, use stations with designated tools. Depending on the size limitations of your kitchen, um, you can separate that stuff out. Um, you have to watch for spillage. I mean, buffets are where allergic people go to die so you don't really have to worry that a severely allergic diner is going to eat from a buffet but in the kitchen you want to watch out 
for spillage, right? Absolutely. And and then the most elementary one of all is if you're working the grill station, and everybody keeps a little um, a little container of salt and pepper and seasonings right there, and all you do, you're working on the fire and you're reaching in and you're just reach in with your fingers and you're gonna use that to sprinkle salt on the food that you're preparing. But if you've been touching uh, an, a food that somebody might be allergic to then not only are your hands contaminated, but the salt container is contaminated too. So just go get another 10-cent box of salt and, and avoid that million-dollar lawsuit by opening some fresh salt and not worry that somebody's um, contaminated fingers have been in the salt container. Mm. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, th- these all seem like such a little simple things, but so easy to overlook on a day-to-day operation. Um, we really have to pay attention to the details. And uh, David, you've been awesome. Are there any other resources you want to share with us before we wrap it up? Contact or get in touch with your local restaurant association. Mm-hmm. Okay, those are they are out there advocating for you. They could not only can they use your membership and um, and and grow because because the restaurant industry is the second largest employer in the United States outside of healthcare. I mean, we have a ton of lobbying power, but we all have to band together. Mm-hmm. And, and as members, you get access to all of these resources that they have out there. And a lot of the resources not only are um, sort of community with other like-minded restaurateurs, but also a lot of printed material and some really good stuff. And so um, foodsafety.gov is the USDA website that helps um, – that has a lot of material not only for um, food packagers but also for restaurants – and um, and then your you know your state and local restaurant associations. I would encourage you to to make yourself um, make yourself aware of their um, of the benefits there and a lot of their materials and resources. You know, foodallergy.org and foodsafety.gov are good starting places just to educate yourself about that. Yeah, and uh, while we're on the topic of resources, one just came to mind. Uh, it's up and coming. It's uh, I got the insider scoop. Uh, and it's called a restaurant a vendor bid, uh, which is, acts very similar to a restaurant association where uh, there's power in numbers. And I believe that they do have uh, – basically, they give you special deals because of their numbers. And I do believe that there's uh, training, food safety and alcohol compliance training as one of their deals that they have. So do check that out if you want discounted rates uh, to learn more as well. Great. Awesome. So that is everything. Uh, we wrap up every episode, David, by having you call somebody out. So who's one indie restaurant professional? Uh, they could be a general manager, an owner, a restaurateur, an executive chef. Who is one person you admire in this industry who you think would just make a great guest mentor on the show? Man, I tell you what. Um, Jason Boso is the founder of Twisted Root Burger Company um, and The Truck Yard here in Dallas. Uh, well, Twisted Root is a is a is now franchising, but I started work with them back in 2007 when it was one unit. And Jason is a classically trained chef and worked at the, in fine dining like Four Seasons and things like that. But all he ever wanted to do was make the best burger in America. That's awesome. And so he split and and raised a little bit of money from some college buddies and uh, and basically slapped together a restaurant in a cool funky part of Dallas. Now we're we're at about 15 units and a franchising program. It won a Nation's Restaurant News Hot Concept Award a couple of years ago, and um, I mean that thing is it's taken off, and we have a heck of a lot of fun together. And that was Jason Boso. 
Boso, yeah, look B-O-S-O. Up, and, look and the up. truck, the truck yard is the only bar in Dallas with a bar in the treehouse. Oh, really? Look out, Jason. I am coming after you because it sounds like you have quite the story to share with us. And, David, you have been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Let the folks at home know how we can connect with you if we have any further questions uh, or they just want to you know, pick up the conversation. Yeah. So the easiest way to do that is our website, foodbevlaw.com, like food and beverage law. Um, we have a ton of resources on the website, lots of articles. It also talks about our speaking engagements. Uh, we tend to – I try to speak at hospitality law conferences, and I'm hoping to go to Tales of the Cocktail next year. And I'll, you know, I, I, I try to get around to all the, the fun events. The boring events are not, not so uh, interesting to me. <laughs> um, when I spoke at the nightclub and bar show last year on um, not using flaming drinks or liquid nitrogen, they pretty much ran me out of town with pitchforks and torches. But generally speaking, I try to find the fun venues. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'll have all those links in the show notes for you to check out uh, Check out the conversation we had, the resources we recommended, the checklist that David recommended, um, and how to connect with David will all be right there in the show notes. Just go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash David Denny. That's D-E-N-N-E-Y, correct? That's right. All right. Beautiful. David, thank you again. Man, there's no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks, Eric. Cheers. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Thank you so much, David Denny, for coming on the show and to opening our eyes on what we can start doing in our restaurants today to protect ourselves from foodborne illnesses. I mean, just so many little things that maybe you didn't think about or just little things we can do just to be a little bit better in our restaurants. But what really stuck out to me, what's really important is just three things, really. Um, The importance of culture, the importance of systems, and the importance of protocol. Uh, I think that's one thing we can all do. And, and, you know, as far as culture goes, it all starts when we're developing and, you know, writing the mission and the vision of our restaurants and getting that initial handbook started. uh, But working in the little things like hygiene, like... Uh, a standard of excellence as far as keeping your workstation clean and caring about your guests and letting your workers know that, hey, we're here, you know, we have a warrant to you, like you said. It's it's our job. There's there's a certain level of, you know, responsibility to, to put out safe food and to make it safe for our guests. I mean, just by starting there and putting that in your culture early on, you can probably pr- protect yourself from a lot of risk. Uh, and then also... Something that comes up time and time again on the show is just having solid systems, processes, procedures, and protocols. Yeah, they're going to be a pain in the ass to create. It's going to be a lot of upfront work. But the idea is you do all the work now so you can not do crazy, stupid work like getting lawyers and getting yourself out of trouble in the future. Um, you You really need to protect yourself. And another way of looking at systems in processes, I mean, we're hiring people that sometimes don't have any experience in the restaurant industry, and they don't know 
what excellence looks like. And this is what Rudy Mick taught us not too long ago. Like, we need to paint a picture of excellence, and that's what systems and processes do. They let you see, they let your, your employees see what the job looks like when it's done excellently, and it's up to us to paint that picture. And you do it with systems, processes, and procedures. Uh, one tool that I would totally recommend, if you haven't heard of it yet mentioned on the show, is Sweet Process. Uh, Owen has been on the show, one of the founders of Sweet Process, and you can get a 28-day free trial of Sweet Process. Guys, if you really hit it hard and focus on getting all of your systems and processes created, uh, you could probably do this whole process for free with using Sweet Process. Uh, 28-day free trial. Use my links. I'll have the links in the show notes. Uh, you have to email Owen and myself and let them know that you found out about Sweet Process uh, through Restaurant Unstoppable. The links will be in the show notes to walk you through that process of signing up for Sweet Process. It's a little confusing. <laughs> but anyway, great tool. And then Protocol too. Just having, um, you know, if this happens, then what? And really mapping it out and taking all the guesswork out of it. Like he recommends having one person on shift all the time who knows what to do in those circumstances. But really what they what they only have to know is where to go to get the answers. Because you, the owner, the manager, the general manager, whatever your title, your job is to write it out. Is to take all the guesswork out of it. And you put that in the operations manual or the handbook, whatever you want to call it. So now all they have to do is to know food allergy protocol go to the protocol what's the operations manual say and then you're protecting yourself you're taking the responsibility off them and you're you know potentially saving and making a much safer situation for your guests so all that stuff um great interview today great conversation thank you david denny always welcome back on the show. That's all we have today. Just a quick reminder uh, if you have any questions for me, any recommendations for future guests, shoot me a message eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. That's Eric with a C. Or maybe there's a topic you want to discuss on the show. I probably don't have the answer. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I have a podcast that allows me to approach people who are experts and I can ask them the questions. That's why this is beautiful. So uh, reach out to me and I'll have somebody have a discussion uh, for all of us so we can learn together. And like always, your support is much appreciated and I'm extremely grateful for it. So if you have the time, please write me a a five-star review. It's super easy. Uh, it really helps with getting the show recognized. So go on iTunes, go on Stitcher Radio, write those reviews. You can support the show by using my links. Um, I have a lot of affiliates, so that means that if you use the links that are in the show notes or on the resources page, I get a little percentage if you decide to purchase something at no extra cost to you. That's just your way of saying thank you, Eric, for doing this podcast and making this resource available to us. And it really helps me out and helps me pay the bills. And hopefully someday, maybe it will allow me to just do this podcast. And that would be awesome. And then lastly, you can go to the support page and just leave a small donation if that's more your route. If you just want to say thank you, here's a dollar or $5, or $1,000. Who knows? Unlikely, but hey, maybe you're out there. (laughs) Alright, that's all I have for you today. Until next time, peace out.